Please open your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 39 and stand for the reading of God's Word. It says, To the choir master, to Jed Yithan, a psalm of David. I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breadth. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breadth. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. You may be seated. Take a look at the first point in your outline, David's failure. The title of this psalm says, To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. We learn from 1 Chronicles 16 that this choir master, Jeduthun, was a man called to give thanks to the Lord. That he had trumpets and cymbals for music and instruments for sacred song. And his name signifies praising and celebrating. This psalm is a psalm of David, but unlike some of the psalms, such as Psalm 51, in which David is pouring his heart out in repentance for his sins of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, we do not know the exact circumstances of this psalm, Psalm 39. Okay, now look at verses 1 to 3, where we read, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. We see this psalm begin with David purposing in his heart to guard his ways, to guard his mouth from sinning, so long as the wicked were in his presence. 
We see David is trying to restrain himself in suppressing the distress which he was feeling. We see that this only made his situation all the more difficult. His affliction grew worse. And finally, as this misery within him grows and burns all the more, as he is thinking about that which is tormenting him, his irritation only worsens by the moment, and he finally gives in to the flesh and speaks. And let us not miss the fact that the rest of the psalm contains the words that he spoke, the words that he was trying to restrain himself in his own strength from speaking, the words that if spoken, he considered them to be a sin, the words that he especially did not want the wicked to hear. And David, a man after God's own heart, in speaking these words, fails miserably to deny the flesh and its temptations. In these first three verses, David is concerned that if he speaks, he would sin with his tongue. So much so that he speaks of guarding his ways and his mouth. That he, figuratively speaking, needed to muzzle himself to prevent him from sinning with his tongue. The fact, uh, <clears throat> sorry, that, it, that he in fact must tame his tongue. Let's see what James says. Turn and take a look at James chapter 3. <clears throat> we see, starting in verse 4, exactly what David is talking about in our psalm this morning. Starting in verse 4, it says, Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. It sure seems like David is experiencing exactly what James is talking about regarding the tongue here. James goes on in verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Now, we could spend the whole rest of our time this morning speaking on this passage in James. But suffice it to say, what is clear from this passage and is relevant for us this morning is that David has purposed to tame his tongue. And James tells us that no human being can do so. Only God can tame our tongues. We literally see this work out before our eyes in the text. It is clear that David intends not to speak, that he works hard in his own strength to suppress his speech, and that it only makes things worse. And eventually, he loses this battle with his tongue, and he speaks, even though he intended not to. David's struggle here provides us with great insight into the simple fact 
of the Christian life that our fleshly bodies are yet to be freed fully from the effects and influence of sin. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 7 when he says, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. John also addresses this battle with the flesh in 1 John, where he says the following, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now thinking back to our text this morning, David, a man described in both the Old and New Testament as a man after God's own heart, set out purposing in his heart and even with his speech to not sin with his tongue. And yet the more he tried, the harder it got. And eventually he spoke, even though he so strongly wished not to. Let me just ask, does this resonate with you? Christian, have you ever intended not to sin? Desired so strongly within yourself to deny the flesh and obey Christ, and then you end up giving in to that temptation. Oh, that we could be like Christ who resisted temptation to the point of shedding blood. I can tell you that this resonates with me. And I want to encourage you this morning that here in this psalm, after David fails, we see what he does with his failure and are given great insight into the way that we as Christians should fight the fight of sin. Now, there is something very important that I would like to bring to our attention as we consider David's failure to tame his tongue. Notice in each of these three verses that David is purposing to defeat his desire to speak in his own strength. Everything is self-focused, and there is no dependence on God for his victory over this temptation. Notice in verse 1, I said, I will guard my ways. I will guard my mouth. In verse 2, I held my peace to no avail. And what happened? Verse (coughs) 3, Then I spoke with my tongue. We need to ask, what is missing from these three verses? Excuse me just a minute. What is missing from these three verses? Where is the plea to the Father for help to remain righteous? Where is the cry to his God for victory over the flesh? Where is the dependence on the Lord to deny the flesh? While his desire to not sin is godly, and his intention is even honorable, he is actually going about this in a way that dishonors his Lord. Because he is relying on his own strength, as if he himself is capable of saying no to the flesh, apart from the strength of the Lord. But as we will see, this changes. His perspective is recalibrated as he considers his utter failure in his own strength to keep from speaking, in light of the greatness of the God whom he serves. For God is great, and apart from him, we can do nothing. My encouragement to you in this, when you sin, do not let it keep you down. Be sorrowful, repent of it, but don't give up on the Lord because of it. 
<clears throat> don't keep looking at yourself and your failure. Don't condemn yourself as the devil would want you to. Instead, listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Look to Jesus and he will open the eyes of your heart to truly understand who you are in light of who he is. And that in him alone we can find hope. And we will see that this is in fact exactly what David does. So let's take a look at the words that David so strongly tried in his own strength to withhold and learn from what he does in his failure as a model for us when we fail in our own strength. Notice the second point in your outline, David's humiliation. Verses 4 to 6 read as follows, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Starting here in verse 4, we read the words that David speaks as a result of the distress that he was facing in his life. It seems that the sentiments expressed here in verse 4 to 6 are at least in part a response to his failure to keep from sinning with his tongue. We see in verse 4, David appeals to the Lord to teach him some things about himself, namely that the Lord would show David his end in terms of the measure of his days and how fleeting he is. This is interesting to me because David is telling the Lord what to teach him. Excuse me. It is as if David is saying, I know that my end, I know that the measure of my days is fleeting. Lord, make me to know this. Lord, teach this to me. So this is not a situation where David does not know or understand these truths in his head. Otherwise, why and how could he ask God to so specifically teach these things to him? How can he articulate it if he doesn't know it in his head? So the question is, in what way does David still need to know these truths? What is left for David to learn about the fleeting nature of his end and the number of his days? The thing lacking in David is that he is not living according to these truths. He thinks he can do it. He thinks he doesn't need God to help him. Here in our psalm, David is in essence praying for a heart of wisdom. Much like we see in Psalm 90, where Moses, after considering the greatness of God, says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90, verse 12. Very clearly here, Moses does not desire a mere head knowledge, but a heart knowledge. And I think the same is true in David's appeal to the Lord here in verse 4. To have a heart of wisdom is to know what is true in your head, believe it, and then to live our lives according to that truth. Whereas foolishness is to live our lives contrary to what is true. And this continues in verse 5 where we 
see David begin to think about himself in light of the infinite, glorious, sovereign God. He says, you have made my days a few handbreadths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. In the first statement, David recognizes the sovereign purpose of God. In the fact that the number of the days of man are so short. David says, you, speaking of God, he says, you have made my days a few handbreadths. This word handbreadth is meant to indicate the brevity of life. It is one of the smallest natural measurements, the measurement of the four fingers on the hand. And he is saying, you, God, in your wisdom, have determined it to be this way. In his second statement, he says, my lifetime is as nothing before you. Here he compares the length of the entirety of his finite life to the vastness of his infinite God and determines that his lifetime is as nothing before such a great God. Have you ever wondered why God made creation to be so vast, so big, to span such great distances that we cannot even fathom them in our minds? And then God put man, the pinnacle of his creation, on a little corner in a small planet in a pretty average solar system in this vast, daunting universe. God is saying something if we are willing and able to listen. One well-known preacher says the following regarding this thought, God created us to know him, love him, and show him. And then he gave us a little hint of what he's like called the universe. And it's an understatement. Just let your mind dwell on that for a moment and let, your, and let that thought settle in your heart as you consider what it says about the God that we worship. This same thought is on David's mind and is beginning to settle in David's heart. <clears throat> Based on this, David determines that the following things have to be true in light of the insignificance of man before the sovereign, eternal creator, God. He says, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. Let's briefly consider these. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, which is translated in the KJV as, verily, every man at his best is altogether vanity. Charles Spurgeon says the following about this point. This is the surest truth, that nothing about man is either sure or true. Take man at his best, he is but a man, and a man is a mere breath, unsubstantial as the wind. Man is settled as the margin has it, and by divine decree it is settled that he shall not be settled. (coughs) He is constant only in inconstancy. His vanity is only verity. His best of which he is vain is but vain. And this is verily true of every man, that everything about him in every way is every way fleeting. This is who we are at our best. 
in our highest achievements, our grandest accomplishments, in the supremacy of our glory, at the pinnacle of our existence, we are a mere, measly, fleeting breath. Here, and then gone in a moment, altogether vanity. Brothers and sisters, all mankind, every person, the most successful, the most powerful, the most influential of us, standing on our greatest achievements, are but a mere breadth in the shadow of the Almighty. We are truly nothing. Meditate on that. Let that shape you. Let it humble you before the one and true Almighty God. What is man that this awesome, infinite, glorious God is mindful of us? And yet he actually is mindful of us. Amen? It is not insignificant then that David writes the word Selah after making this observation. The word Selah is an indication from the writer of this psalm that we should just take a pause here and consider these things. We should not rush over this point, but settle on it, meditate on it, chew it over, and consider the implications of it. So let's pause for a moment and just consider this unbelievable fact that in spite of our utter insignificance, the all-significant God is mindful of us. He's mindful of you. David's second observation. In light of the finite insignificance of man in the face of our eternal creator God, David says, surely man goes about as a shadow. This just emphasizes what he has already been saying, namely that man is like a shadow here today and gone in a moment. Finite man, like a shadow, has no permanence or substance in light of the internal permanence, eternal permanence of the creator God of the universe. David's third observation is, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. One commentator says the following regarding this. Read well this text. And then listen to the clamor of the market. The hum of the exchange the din of the city streets. And remember that all this noise, this breach of quiet, is made about unsubstantial, fleeting vanities. The obvious question is, what are the things that you are striving for in this life? And of what value are they? By the way, the litmus test and answer to this question is eternity. What is the eternal value of the things that you are pursuing? Matthew 6, 19 to 21 says the following. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys 
and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. By the way, this doesn't mean that you have to be a missionary or a preacher to live a meaningful life, right? This doesn't mean that your job, your marriage, your kids, your friendships and relationships outside these walls have no eternal value. God has called you to those things. Therefore, they have eternal value. The question is, are you being faithful in them in such a way that they will matter in eternity? This also means that you should ask yourself whether or not the things you are pursuing, whether or not the things you treasure, whether or not your heart desires and values that which will matter in eternity. So we've seen that David purposes to deny the flesh and failed in his own strength. This failure has led him to consider the inability and insignificance of man in light of his great God. He, in his despair, has come to a place of humility, which is exactly where he needs to be. And this is where we all should be as well. Prior, it was only David working. Now, in response to David's humility, God begins to work. In both James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5, we see the phrase, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in James 4.10, we read, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is what David has done. He started out in arrogance, thinking that he could tame his own tongue, and he failed miserably. Now, he is humbled before his sovereign creator, God. With this in mind, Let's look at the next point in our outline and see what fruit comes from this humility. The next point in our outline is David's hope. Verse 7 says the following, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Now think about what he has just finished saying. He has meditated on his total and utter insignificance and inability. He has been completely humbled, and he arrives at hope? Why is this? After such a depressing, weighty, and discouraging consideration of his shortness of life, of the insignificance of his greatest accomplishments, of the vanity of all his work and efforts, you would think that he would have fallen into further despair into total and utter hopelessness. But he doesn't. Why? Why is David not giving up on life and instead has any ounce of hope in his bones at all? Because David is a man who knows the very one with whom he has been comparing himself. He knows God. And he doesn't just know of God. He knows him relationally. He knows God as his heavenly father. And in his humility, as a man who believes in the promises of his sovereign creator, God, he turns to God in his hopelessness. And there, only in Christ, does he find hope. 
Let me ask you, what have you placed your hope in? When you are in distress, when you have reached your end, what do you turn to for hope? And that thing which you are hoping in, is it sufficient for all your difficulties? Is it bigger than those things which trouble your mind late at night when you can't sleep? Does that which you place your hope in, if you hope in anything at all, have the power to overcome your difficulties? Man's utter insignificance in light of God's greatness has an unexpected implication that should give us hope. David's God is bigger than David and therefore bigger than his problems. His God is able where David is not. So I ask again, what is it that you hope in? Who do you hope in? In this moment, I urge you, if you do not hope in God, if you do not know God, so that you can hope in Him, I urge you to consider Jesus Christ. I urge you to consider your failures in trying to live up to God's perfect, righteous standard in your own strength. And to consider your total and complete inability to do good before such a holy God. And then I urge you to consider what this God has done for those who believe in Him. Remember, He is mindful of us. Paul says the following in Romans chapter 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Are you still an enemy of God? Or are you reconciled to God? Are you saved by the life of Christ from the wrath of God? Are you rejoicing in God? Do you hope in God? If not, Right now, this very moment, I encourage you to place your trust for salvation in Jesus Christ. (coughs) He died in our place, and we do not deserve the great gift that he makes available to us by faith. But the good news is that you can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No matter what you have done in your past, no matter the sins that, like David, you have failed in. Jesus paid our price, and in him only can you be saved. As the scripture says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I urge you then to consider Jesus Christ. to believe in his work on the cross to save you from your sin and to make him Lord of your life. And only then can you say with David that you too hope in God. Now let's consider the fourth and final point in our outline, David's plea. I have just encouraged you to make a desperate plea to God for your salvation. And here we see David making a desperate plea to God for his salvation. Consider the remaining words of David in our passage this morning. Deliver me from all my transgressions. 
That sounds like a plea to God for salvation. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. (coughs) When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. In these remaining verses, we see three things. First, he pleads for deliverance from his sin. Second, he now does not open his mouth. <clears throat> and third, he pleads for mercy for, uh, from the Lord's discipline. In verse 8, David says, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Now we see David's dependence on the Lord. Previously in verses 1 to 3, David was striving to live righteously in his own strength. He was trying to deliver himself from his transgressions. Now, David is appealing to the Lord for deliverance from his transgressions. Notice also that David appeals to God for the deliverance, for this deliverance, because the wicked, the foolish people in his midst, were looking for any even slight opportunity to scorn him, to reproach him. We should not overlook this. David is the anointed king of Israel. David is God's chosen instrument to lead Israel. And so scorn on David would ultimately mean scorn and blaspheming of the Lord as well. Here we see that David has a good understanding of the importance of how his life reflects on God's reputation, of how God is perceived by the world because of him. Remember in verse 1, a part of David's determination to not speak was because he did not want to sin with his tongue in the presence of the wicked. Paul says the following about the Jews in Romans chapter 2. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Brothers and sisters, how does your life speak to those around you about God? Is the name of God blasphemed because of you? Or does your life leave no room for their scorn? because you have lived uprightly by the Spirit. We also read the following in 1 Peter chapter 2. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The way that we live our lives as Christians matters. The world is watching. Then we read in verse 9, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Here we see that unlike in verse 3, when he spoke with his tongue, here he is mute. He does not open his mouth. Why? Well, as we've just seen in verse 9, he has appealed to God for deliverance from his transgressions. And now here in verse 10, we see that God has done it. God has answered David's plea for deliverance. 
there is an interesting paradox in Scripture with regard to righteous living in the life of a believer. When a believer lives in obedience, when a believer says no to sin and has victory over the flesh, the believer does this because it is God who has done it. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. It's by the Spirit, which is God doing it. And you put to death the deeds of the body, which is you doing it because God has done it. We also see a similar exhortation in Philippians 2 when we read, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here Paul is exhorting the saints in Philippi to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And if they are doing this, it is because of the foundational truth that it is God who works in them both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And in case there is any doubt in your minds about this, look at the first word in verse 13. Can we have that verse back up, please? The first one in verse 13. Actually, not the first word, but it's the the word after the first phrase, for, right? For is a very important word to pay attention to in Scripture because it tells us that what follows this word is the grounds for what precedes this word. It's a form of argument that follows this pattern. A is true because of B. So in this case, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us. We work because it is ultimately God who is working. Further, notice that God's working is not only to cause us to act, but also to give us a genuine desire to do so. As verse 13 demonstrates, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will. It's God who works in you to will. And finally, this is all for his good pleasure. The sovereignty of God, and yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what we are talking about here, God's sovereignty over our desires, God's sovereignty over our works is for his good pleasure. It is for his glory. It is so that in all things we have no cause for boasting and instead we are driven to our knees in worship because he has done it. Praise be to his holy name. Now look at verse 10. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my father's. Look away from me, that I may smile again, 
before I depart and am no more. In these final verses, we see a number of things that I think are very helpful for us as we wrap up this morning. We see the severity of the discipline of the Lord to his saints. Verse 10, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. The Lord's discipline feels like hostility to David. David is spent by the Lord's discipline. Verse 11a, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. The Lord's discipline is a rebuking for sin and a consuming of those things that we hold most dear to us. The discipline of the Lord tears down our idols. There should be no thing more dear to us than the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's also remember that the discipline of the Lord, while severe, it is a fatherly discipline. That is done out of his love for you, his child. Hebrews 12 reminds us of this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It goes on and says, God is treating you as sons. Brothers and sisters, while it can be extremely painful, do not be discouraged by the discipline of the Lord. For if you are being disciplined by him, it is because he loves you. It is because you are his child. It is because you are truly one of his. And we now see again here at the end of verse 11, we see the exact same statement that we previously considered in verse 5. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Pause and meditate, guys. Pause and meditate. Here David is, reminding, is reminded again of his own insignificance, of his inability in light of the severe discipline of the father. And this takes us to verse 12 and 13, where David says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. In this final desperate prayer, we see David make two requests. First, that God would not hold his peace at David's tears. And second, for the Lord to stay his hand of discipline before it completely destroys David so that he might smile again. David is asking his heavenly father for mercy. He is asking his father for a reprieve. David is asking his father for peace and happiness instead of chastisement. He is asking his father in heaven to restore his joy. This is not an unfounded request. As David has come to a place of humility in his life, now dependent on the Lord, rather than himself alone for deliverance from his transgressions, David has been humbled. <clears throat> it is obvious that David knows his Lord. He knows the character of God. He knows the mercy of God, the understanding of God, his long-suffering his forbearance. 
And all of these things are designed by God for our restoration rather than our destruction. If we would but respond to him in humility and repentance. Otherwise, why pray this prayer? Why appeal to God, as we see David doing here, if God has no desire for our good? David knows God's desire for his good, and David knows God's design in the discipline of his children. What is interesting here is the basis upon which he pleads with the Lord for these two things when he says, For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. He doesn't just say, I am a sojourner. He says, I'm a sojourner with you. And he's speaking to God. This word sojourner can also be translated stranger. And so it appears that David's appeal to the Lord to stay his hand of discipline is grounded on the fact that like God, David is a stranger, an alien in this world. So David refers to this shared likeness of sojourner with his heavenly father as the evidence for his true sonship with the Father and as the grounds of his appeal to God for mercy. David knows the heart of his Father. Do you? My final thought here and encouragement to you as we close this morning is to remember the heart of your Heavenly Father. Namely, that the discipline of the Lord for his children is not God showing his wrath towards us. Rather, it is the Lord showing his love for us. David's prayer here is presented in light of David knowing that God is an understanding God towards his children. That our Heavenly Father's discipline is only as severe as it needs to be to draw us back to him and no more severe than necessary to accomplish that. That as his children, we can always come to the Father and appeal to his mercy and grace. Do not be discouraged by the discipline of the Lord. Rather, be encouraged and turn to Him in dependence on Him because His discipline means that you are one of His children. Now I invite Noel and the music team back up to lead us in musical worship as I close us in prayer. (laughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for what it shows us, Lord, for the importance of humility, that apart from you, we have no chance to fight the flesh. But with you, Lord, we can say you have done it. Father, we also thank you for your discipline. While it is hard and painful, Lord, it means that we are your child and that you love us, Lord. Continue to work in our lives as we rest in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing, Trust and Obey.